remembers when the News of the World borrowed the Smash Hits article about where the money you spend on pop records goes to, changed the graphics slightly so that nobody would ever suspect a thing, but forgot to take out the mocked-up t-shirt of Red Reg Snipton and his useless toadstool. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is journalist Martin Bealham. Martin, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, I work for The Guardian. I'm a senior social reporter here, so I, I guess I kind of do our silly, viral and finally stories. You can usually find me on the homepage of The Guardian, um, ruining journalism with clickbait. I think that's, that's what I normally say that I do. Well, I know there's a good link into your first choice from there somewhere in the... Yeah, maybe the short cartoons before the news were kind of the equivalent of the viral clickbait of their day. No, I'm not going anywhere with that. Let's just hit the theme tune and we'll take it from there. theme tune sounds a bit like a certain other theme tune but i can't put my finger on it martin what was that when i was growing up we used to have inflicted on us a laurel and hardy cartoon on children's tv in the afternoon at an age where i think nobody would have known who laurel and hardy were and it's as i think about it now it kind of breaks my head because i'm a bit like so we wouldn't have known who laurel and hardy were i assume it was made after they died and then surely the whole point of something like Laurel and Hardy is that that's humans doing slapstick in real life. Whereas if you've got animations, you can do whatever you want anyway, which is why it's usually Tom and Jerry and the, you know, Roadrunner um, tricking Wiley e. Coyote into a tunnel and those sort of things. I kind of just don't really understand how a Laurel and Hardy cartoon was ever a thing well i did look into it i found out it's from 1966 made by hannah barbera but it was actually because a guy called larry harman who was tv's bozo the clown apparently no means nothing to us over here (laughs) but after stan laurel died he bought the rights of their faces i am not joking he contacted their families (laughs) bought the rights of their faces and went to hannah barbera and said let's do a cartoon now as you said taking them out of reality and into cartoons That was my big problem with it, because in the opening titles, I'm sure you remember, it split into four boxes where it had them doing various, I say standard Laurel Hardy antics. It was like being chased by a crocodile, and I think they were in a chariot race in one of them. But one of them had Ollie flapping his arms and flying and Stan chasing after him. And yeah, that happened every every time you saw Laurel Hardy, didn't it? (laughs) It's just, um, I mean, like I remember the animated... Star Trek and that kind of made sense in a way because you could do it on you know you could then do space on a budget and you've got the original voice cast and and didn't with that they actually had an alien as one of the people on the bridge didn't they on on the Enterprise and so that makes more sense because it was always like a sci-fi fantasy thing but I I don't know I just like if you're doing slapstick cartoon why pretend to be real people it just doesn't (laughs) it's not funny having a piano fall on your head if someone's just drawn it it's like if you've managed to pull that off in real life that's that's funny I think it would actually be quite horrific if it happened. <laughs> but it wasn't the only cartoon like that, actually, because, again, it's only me that remembers this, but in the, I assume it was late 70s, there was another, again, Hanna-Barbera cartoon called The Robonic Stooges. 
So post six million dollar man, post bionic woman, they had curly Larry and Moe. In the opening titles on the conveyor belt being operated on by this kind of biotronics machine. And they had extendable limbs and X-ray vision and so on. And it was the Three Stooges having superhero adventures with bionic parts. The most ambitious crossover event of all time. Well, at that age, I didn't know it was a crossover. I didn't <laughs> know that they were, you know, from cinematic history. I was really quite surprised when I first saw a Three Stooges short and thought, why isn't Moe's arm going really <laughs> long to rescue a child from a burning building? It's funny, it's funny those things that kind of like borrow from traditions that that you're not going to be aware of as a child. And we saw something I was watching. I know there was an old clip of the Muppets or we were showing like my kids some clips of the Muppets on YouTube. And, and I said to my wife something like, oh, I'd kind of never clocked how much the original Muppet show was like in the history, you know, steeped in the tradition of vaudeville and had a lot of kind of Jewish comedy in it. And my wife just looked at me and went, Martin, you were six. And <laughs> I suppose, you know, it's kind of, it was just the Muppets. But it, I, I, I do find it fascinating the way those sort of children end up learning those kind of tropes of different types of uh, theatre or comedy or stuff through through the way it's presented presented to them in the, in the shows they watch now. It has always been the thing of people trying to sell the past to young children in a kind of quite a patronising way, the sort of, you must respect this, this is important way. Uh, obviously, they weren't showing much respect for Laurel and Hardy, but I point to things like the way the BBC always put on things like Edgar Kennedy shorts and so on in the summer holidays, and I'd be sat there age six thinking, but Battle of the Planets has just been on. I don't want to watch this boring black and white man. I think people don't understand quite often that that's the wrong way to do it with children. I mean, I know we've both been following closely Doctor Who on Twitch. And I know that's not really children watching, but that's exactly the right way to do it. Because it's always been in the past, you know, people say, oh, you must watch all four parts of an unearthly child. It is significant. And people think, no. And then when you give it to a younger audience on their own terms and say, watch it, react to it how you want, they really like it. Yeah, I had a bit of an epiphany on that a while ago in that I was because my children have watched the Sarah Jane Adventures and absolutely lapped that up. And so one night I showed um, my daughter, who's eight, the Time Warrior, because it's the introduction of Sarah Jane Smith as a character. And I thought she'd be interested. And after about 15 minutes, she was really bored of it. And I, I just suddenly thought, it's like, obviously, I care that she'll really like that. But why? It would be like my dad having sat me down to watch something from the 1940s when I was growing up in the 1970s. It's like, I might have liked it, but I'm never going to be that passionately into it. And I just suddenly relaxed myself about the whole idea that my kids had to get into the whole of Doctor Who it's like the fact that my daughter has got into the 11th Doctor and Amy and Rory I should just be happy enough with that I don't need to make her sit through time and the Rani and explain why you know that's still actually decent despite the production values or this that and the other and which obviously time and the Rani isn't but I, you know and so I've just kind of relaxed about that a bit more but it is that thing of like how do you try and introduce children into cultural things you like without becoming, you know, so overbearing that, that it turns out, you know, my kids will get into classical music just to spite me because I've pushed miserable indie stuff at them so much for the last 10 years. Is, that, is it Clickhole or, or, or somewhere is that article about, you know, dad ruins child's life by making them into popular culture that's completely irrelevant to, you know, anything they're going to talk about <laughs> in the playground the next day? Well, I dread to think what they turn to if you made them watch Time in the Rani. <laughs> I'm not sort of drawing any parallels here, but the choice of song title for your second choice it's quite interesting in this context. Seems 
doing Midlife Crisis, which, bizarrely, for such a really big hit at the time, has sort of been forgotten itself anyway. But we're actually looking at a specific performance of it here, are we, Martin? So my memory of this is that it must, was out, and it must have been in 1991 or 1992, and I was at university, and it was the first year at university, it was in a shared flat, and Top of the Pops was still appointment TV. It was about the only time we all crawled out of our rooms and sat in this tiny little kitchen area where we had a bit of telly. And uh, Faith and More were on Top of the Pops, and they did that, and it was absolutely blinding. And I went out and bought it the next day, but the version I bought then didn't sound like what had been on Top of the Pops. And the way I remember it is that basically because of the line mentioning your menstruating heart, like Top of the Pops had just put this amazing like heavy flange effect all over it or spun the record backwards or done something weird. And I thought that was just like an integral part of the chorus. It was like it built up to that amazing chorus. And then there's just this weird wall of noise for a bit. And then it goes into the, and, but And that wasn't on the version that I got. You know, we hadn't recorded it. So I've never seen that clip again or rewound it. But that, that's my memory, that, that Top of the Pops did something to stop you hearing the word menstruation, but then it made the record so much better. Well, I did go looking for it, couldn't find it, but I absolutely can see that happening because 1992 in particular was a weird year for Radio 1 and Top of the Pops, centering records in odd ways. I mean, there was everyone forgets. You know, everyone says, oh, how did they play Ebenezer Good on Top of the Pops? How did they get away with that? They didn't. They used the remix version from the B-side which Mr. C did live rapping over and changed some of the lyrics, which sounded nothing like the single version. That was really weird. And of course, there was that famous version of Sexy MF by Prince, where on the start, it Simon Bates saying, this isn't the version you can get in the shops. You know, and explaining <laughs> the, the sexual swear words are being removed. And I think it was, I think it went like, sexy word, shaking that ass. You know, they, did, they left ass in. So I can absolutely see that they do that because you know that's a record in the top 10 with a taboo word really and for the benefit of anyone who doesn't really know faith anymore they were not using it in an offensive context it's quite a feminine sympathetic lyric midlife crisis really but obviously you can't really say that on top of the pops in those days so obviously it's going to be obscured i just want to know what effect they used in my head i mean i remember um susie and the banshees being on top of the pops doing dear prudence and they clearly just got the same sort of like electronic special effects board that they were using for Doctor Who at the time and so in the bit of that where it kind of went in all phasey and, and flangey they kind of made Susie look like all digital and black and white shadows. I remember that making a real impression on me as a child. And so in my head, that's what they kind of did for the Faith No More thing. And I feel like, you know, they kind of probably inverted the video or something just to make it, I, I don't know, it just, it was the basically the reason I went out and bought the record the next day. And it just wasn't the same track at all. Well, have you ever had any other record experiences like that? Because I do know someone who, I don't know if you ever listened to when Chris Morris was a Radio 1 DJ, but he's forever playing odd bits of, you know, Prince Charles A minister smack to your child over the top of records things like that i know someone who because chris morris was an early convert to beck he really pushed mellow gold on his radio one show and hello justin if you're listening justin lewis went out and bought mellow gold on the back of hearing it on chris morris's show and was surprised that all the weird speech samples were actually part of the beck record (laughs) they weren't chris morris's additions i mean did you ever find anything else didn't quite match up to how you'd heard it i've got a weird thing now i mean this is just i mean obviously i'm an absolute 80s 
Peter's nerd, but there's a Thompson Twins 12 inch. It was the B side to In the Name of Love when it came out, and it's called In the Beginning. And the version that I used to have taped off of my uncle's 12 inch single, that is the version that I know backwards in my head. None of the stuff that's been reissued or put on streaming or anything is the same mix, and it drives me nuts because it's just like the version in my head is so different to the version that's available anywhere that on all the reissues always claims to be the version from that 12 inch and I, and I always think there's just some poor intern who at some point in the 90s had to pull the tapes of a load of music they weren't interested in to digitize it to you know get it onto streaming services or put it out on cd reissues who just basically didn't know the stuff and uh, made the mistake at that point and that mistake has just been replicated onwards to the to the fact that um and i don't have my vinyl anymore as well i used to have it on vinyl and uh, it's just incredibly frustrating to not have that slight precise version tobacco road by the nashville teens is another track that i feel none of the versions on streaming services are the same as the record my dad used to have that i used to play when i was a kid they must have used a slightly different take or a slightly different recording session it's it's incredibly frustrating yeah i mean we're getting completely away from faith no more never mind the 80s here but similar to that i mean i'm appalled there's an alternate version of tobacco road out there that is a perfect record that should be left as it is but why has nobody else ever noticed there are two slightly different versions of ichiku park by small faces and in one of them the phasing doesn't work properly and that seems to turn up on compilations a lot and no you want the one that was a hit single that was famous for its phasing not the one that slightly sounds as though somebody's opened a window in the background (laughs) (laughs) i always feel that putting those compilation stuff together was probably you know the dog's body work that you gave to the work experience kid one thing that i do like actually talking of obscure 80s reissues and stuff that amused me greatly is um that they sort of did a reissue program for nick kershaw stuff and missed two of the tracks off and like on the nick kershaw fan forums people were really really angry that they'd missed these two tracks off this complete edition until basically nick kershaw himself came out and said one of them was a live recording b-side that i always hated the song anyway and i just don't want it on the cd and like the other one was like a remix that had been done behind his back while he was on tour and he didn't even know it was coming out and he was he just he himself had vetoed them going on these complete you know reissue packages because he was just unhappy with them but then he started getting a bit sort of like argumentative with the fans but you know because obviously the entitled fans are like but i still want it 80s stars getting into rows with their own fans about the reissue program so i'm, I'm always there for that okay well we're sticking with censorship for your next choice and as I can't find the bit that's been censored, let's just have the trailer. Join us for the fantastic adventures of Flash Gordon. Flash uses football to fight his enemy, Ming the Merciless. Stridus, are your men on the right vitamins? Flash's strategy proved successful. Will he survive? Find out now at a theater near you. Music by Queen. Rated PG. Okay, well that's the original trailer for Flash Gordon, but we're actually moving forward a couple of years in 1983, when this was first shown on the BBC. What did you notice, Martin? So I've got really clear memory of going to the Flash Gordon movie. So we have this wonderful, um, in Walthamstow where I grew up, this wonderful Art Deco cinema that played host to loads of bands. And my mum went and saw the Beatles there. And, and I remember going to that cinema to see the original Star Wars movies, the original Superman, the Star Trek. And my dad took me to see the incredibly glorious, colourful camp version of Flash Gordon that came out. A, a movie... I, I just can't quite understand how it ever got produced in that way. And it's just brilliant. But what I remember about it was that there was a bit where there was like a 
a villain type person who was standing at the top of some stairs and they dissolved into this sticky black puddle type thing that ran down the stairs. And I remember my dad mentioning it to my mum when we got home from seeing the movie. And so it feels like it was a thing that was quite a standout scene. And then I've never ever seen it again or seen any reference to it. And I feel like it was cut at some point or cut for being shown on the television but now I think about it, the more I've thought about it, it's, I keep thinking I don't even re- I'm not even really sure where it would have fitted into the narrative because I'm not kind of sure which character it should have been. But that's the thing. I remember the scene vividly and my dad talking to my mum about how gross that scene was. Well, it's a long time since seeing Flash Gordon, but it's quite possible that it was cut for television because they did used to really heavily trim films around that. I remember when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was first shown. They really, they didn't actually totally cut but they really trimmed the bits with Mola Ram grabbing people's hearts and they cut bits out of the banquet scene as well you notorious chilled monkey brains and all that so it made no sense at all it was just people sitting at a table that didn't advance the plot but they did do things like that so I can imagine that when Flash Gordon came in because the two main things that I remember about seeing like the cinema were people going ew when first of all they pulled the goggles off one of those Brian Eno blokes that are working in the technical mm-hmm. place and wires come out of his eye socket and then it's another eye socket thing at the end when Clytus falls over onto those spikes and his real face oozes yes. out from behind his mask. You know, so it was a, quite a gory film. I seem to remember the... It probably looked ridiculous when I saw it now, but I seem to remember being quite unnerved by the bit where... It's Peter Duncan, isn't it, puts his arm in that tree trunk and gets bit yes, by the thing that yeah. turned his arm green. So it wasn't the most family-friendly of films, I think. So it's quite conceivable they might have cut something out. Where it's gone to since is a mystery, though. But you do get these weird alternate versions of films that nobody notices. The one thing that I, I kind of... You know, people always have that question of, like, what would you do if you had a time travel machine? And one of the things I think about is going back to that cinema and seeing my dad's face when he's bought his, like, I don't know, what, eight or nine, ten-year-old son to the cinema and then there's just that incredible very bdsm scene of the princess astra or whatever her name is getting whipped while peter wingard is sort of like leering at her and it's just an astonishing scene in the middle of the film that like you've taken your kids to i can imagine if i was in that situation now with my kids i would be absolutely mortified whilst also secretly thinking i should get the dvd of this later <laughs> It was quite kind of par for the course for films that have bits like that, and they were not appropriate for the audience that it was aimed at. I mean, there's the isn't there a scene in Clash of the Titans where the female lead has to grab for a towel very quickly, and in a couple of the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad films, there's bits like that. You know that they really went overboard on the the nudity, the BDSM, and so on in films where it should not have been in. Yeah, the only thing I, I sort of like kind of take from that now when I watch stuff with my kids is, is that sometimes because my kids are five and eight, and sometimes I'll be wincing at some kind of reference or something, but actually when you look at them, it's just completely gone over their head. I suspect, actually, although, to be honest, my daughter, I'm probably on the threshold of that not happening anymore. It is interesting that the first TV showing, as far as I can tell, of Flash Gordon was 1983, which, I'm not saying this had a direct influence, but it was right at the height of the Video Nasties panic. And obviously you can see, particularly the BBC and ITV, 
being a bit more cautious about it because don't forget ITV accidentally showed visiting hours which was on the nasties list and got absolutely bollocked by the IBA obviously you know, it's a mainstream thriller with William Shatner but it was under investigation by the obscene publication squad at the time uh, <laughs> so they would have been a bit cautious so they would have been a bit trigger happy cutting things but again it's so long since I've seen Flash Gordon that I don't remember that bit so I'm interested to know where it fitted in yeah I kind of I feel like this is probably some kind of false memory because I also just can't explain who or where it would have been in the narrative structure from what I remember of the movie but I also haven't seen it for a long time so um, uh, maybe I should dig it out but maybe maybe not let my kids watch it well there were a lot of disposable characters in that film (laughs) that's one thing I really remember (laughs) about it I do remember actually you know the thing the thing with the interest from Flash Gordon and talking a bit about um, showing old serials and stuff when we were kids growing up and uh, I remember um, being so angry uh, watching the old Rocketman serial with this kind of like fudged cliffhanger in one of the episodes I think they were like showing them back to back so you know if you've been going to Saturday morning cinema you know you had a week between and there's a bit where like Rocketman was like basically stuck in the back of a van and then the van goes over a cliff and then when they reprise the cliffhanger at the start of the next episode there's basically a whole minute and a half of him being able to untie himself get out of the van go and do some other thing blah 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 before the van goes over the cliff and i remember as a child feeling so angry and <laughs> raw that they cheated at the end of the previous episode and uh, so that's you know i don't know how old i was but i was already learning about narrative structure and the way um, producers would abuse and manipulate it in order to give you a false impression well you say that but i do remember when i went to see iron man 2 coming out and hearing somebody saying he didn't like it because the science was all wrong and they wanted to go up to him and say it's called Iron Man 2 <laughs> it's not going to be accurate to the last detail is it fantastic we're staying in space for your next choice well not really in space it's sort of space down to oh I'm not get going anywhere with that anyway here's a clip to represent it an idea born in unsettled times we are going forward America, the United States, is first in space. Becomes a feat of engineering excellence. The most complex machine ever built. To bring humans to and from space. Ride your roll, Discovery. And eventually construct the next stop on the road to space exploration. Okay, well, that was William Shatner narrating the story of the space shuttle. But one detail it doesn't cover is your next choice, Martin, which is... So, I feel like I saw the space shuttle on top of a jumbo jet at an air show that I think was at Southend. And so, again, it feels like, you know, I was on the beach or, like, on the rainers by the beach and, you know, planes go past it, as they do at an air show. But and one of them... And the reason I imagined if it was on display that we may have driven from London to Southend specifically to see the space shuttle on the, on the back of the 747 because I know they did used to transport it around like that but my memory of that is tempered by the fact that I can't think of a good reason why you would ship one of your most fragile spaceships across the Atlantic to take it to Southend Air Show and so I really am quite perplexed about it. but that, that is my memory is is of seeing the space shuttle go past me on top of a plane well you say there's no reason but to me there's always seen to never be any reason for anything that's done at air shows I mean look at the most ridiculous <laughs> thing have you ever seen the footage of the Doctor Who and the Daleks air show from the mid 60s uh, yes well, <laughs> it's got William Hartnell basically reenacting the Zapruder footage which I've always liked but all these incredible things with Daleks blowing up and being shot by planes and so on. Why did they do any of these things? What have they got to do with planes? 
Why were there such big crowds as well? Once you've got a, you've got a crowd of people there, the planes don't take that long to go past. I guess you've got to find other entertainment. There was a weird prominence in the eighties to wear show related things. I mean, people forget how big the Red Arrows were for a couple of years. No, no, I know they're still popular now. I mean, just yesterday at the time of recording, everyone was getting really excited on Twitter because the Red Arrows had done a flyover. But they were actually, they were almost celebrities for a while in the 80s. They were forever on chat shows and so on. I'm not sure why that was. So I actually went, because I, I work in Kings Cross, and I suddenly thought, oh, that, that RF fly past is going to go over. And I thought, oh, it's, it's really, it's only 20 minutes to get down to Green Park, isn't it? So I thought, I'll go down to Green Park and then I'll d- definitely see it properly. So, um, so I got there and I hadn't really, as an ardent anti-monarchist, I hadn't really thought through how much of a royal occasion it was going to be. And so I sort of arrived just outside Buckingham Palace as the royal family were coming on the balcony and everyone was cheering and clapping. And I, I don't think I've ever felt so out of place in all of my life. And I was just thinking, I just wanted to see some planes go over. I didn't realise I've now, you know, inadvertently supported the royal family. <laughs> and I thought the, the fly pass was wonderful, but I'd made this dreadful miscalculation because in my head I thought it'd take 20 minutes to get there, 10 minutes for the planes to go over, 20 minutes to get back to the office. No one even notice so I've gone and I kind of hadn't taken account of the fact that everybody who went to see the thing was also going to be trying to get out of the park in that same 20 minute period and so I ended up having to enjoy a traditional journalist's extended lunch break by finding a place where I could have some refreshments until the crowd had dispersed. But at least these days you can at least start carry on writing on your phone so you're not quite completely out of the office but uh, yeah it was a little bit of a, a Red Arrows related miscalculation in my work Are you absolutely certain that Casper Weinberger wasn't there when you saw the space shuttle and you inadvertently supported him? I'm not not sure. I feel feel like possibly the Flash Gordon and the space shuttle were just the product of an overexcited sci-fi fanatic child's dreams that then became wrongly classified as actual memories as I grew up. But again, the space shuttle itself was a huge thing in the 80s. I mean, I think there's a pretty obvious and unpleasant reason why, you know, it became less of a thing as the decade wore on, but it was an icon, really. You know, I remember having a, a toy space shuttle. That's quite an odd thing to have really you know because you have toys of fictional spacecraft not real ones i had a toy one i also remember i really wanted there was a very big airfix kit version of it that i always really wanted for my birthday and christmas and never got it's probably wise to think of it as a parent now is all that means is that i'm just going to make it badly get glue everywhere and then it's just going to take up a load of room in my bedroom <laughs> it's going to sound like such a deeply jaded parent <laughs> these days but yeah what was bigger and i remember again it's like I, I feel like i remember this although i'm not sure the time zone works or whatever but my memory of the of the first um space shuttle disaster is is coming home from school and my mum opening the door and, and saying to me they've lost the space shuttle and my brain not kind of comprehending what she meant and kind of like i'm like what do you mean they've lost it as in like that you know they couldn't get through to it on the radio or something uh rather than it than it obviously it, it having exploded but yeah i mean that was there was something really interesting about the design and i i think after the moon landings space had become space and the space race had become so like boring and mundane and the space shuttle design was something new and very different i think for people to be interested in about space exploration because there was such a big gap wasn't there it's like as once america had reached the moon the russians kind of lost interest in financing the whole thing and then you had skylab for a bit and you know whereas you feel like 
we've got more sort of continuous interesting space missions now photographing the planets on the outer edge of the solar system or the X planets some of them sadly are and the space shuttle somehow uh, captured that I do like the probably apocryphal story that the booster rockets are that size because they had to be transported on railways and so there was a restriction because it had to go through a tunnel at some point and that you know railway tracks are set that far apart because that's how big you build axles and axles are built that way because it is how is the right size to incorporate two horses on roman cars and so effectively there's a way where you know the size of a roman horse's bum has influenced the design of the space shuttle 2000 years later because of the size of a tunnel um, it's a it's a wonderful story but i suspect apocryphal i think they probably just worked out how much volume of, uh, of fuel they needed in those booster rockets and built it around that well, I, I think the apocryphal element is that i think i genuinely believe this the size of railway tracks was based on accommodating that thing where Laurel and Hardy stood on it and it had the two handles that went up and down and they went along <laughs> for about an hour and then got faster and faster when the train came closer to them <laughs> now that didn't happen in the cartoon did it <laughs> <laughs> no. right well we're stuck in the 80s for your next choice now this is a pop record that's definitely not forgotten judging by the reaction when it showed up on top of the pops on BBC4 but we're going to be looking at a slightly different aspect to it <laughs> Well, you probably all recognise that. That's Dr. Mabusa by Propaganda, but there's a specific detail around it, Martin, that you remember that no one else really seems to. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of all that ZTT stuff and Frankie and that. And I remember my sister had a copy of Now That's What I Call Music 3 on cassette that we used to play in the car. And I was beginning to go through my aloof indie phase <laughs> and disapproved of the whole thing. But it, on it, it, had, it, there were two tracks on it. They had um, Red Guitar by David Sylvian and Dr. Mabuse by Propaganda, and which I presume now as an adult, both of those were included as contractual obligations, as in like, if you want the Frankie Goes to Hollywood single, you have to take Propaganda as well, and then some equivalent from Virgin Records to take the David Sylvian. But, but those two tracks were the highlights of the tape for me. Everyone else in the family is like, oh, what's this god-awful noise? And I'd be like, oh, these are the tracks for me. But what I recall is that there was a documentary show that I think would have been on Capital Radio because at home I would have only listened to sort of Radio 1 or, or, or Capital Radio in London where they had Trevor Horn talking about production and, and, and I was really kind of interested always interested in that side of stuff I was making music myself and uh, you know at one point kind of thought I might like to graph and go into sound engineering and that side of things what I remember is that he was basically they must have been in the studio and they were playing the multi-tracks of Dr. Mabuse and he was talking through how you would do a remix of it so it was kind of like he just would bring up the drums and then the bass and like now we're going to add this bit and now we're going to add that bit which I feel then became the basis for when Frankie came back with their very poorly received second album and the lead single was Rage Hard the first 12 inch mix of that had a woman talking about how you do a 12 inch remix and I'm sure that was inspired by Trevor Horn having done this on this radio show but I just again it's just it's, I have this memory of 
someone talking through all the different parts of Dr. Mabuse as they as they bring them in. And there's all that w- weird stuff on that record that you can only really hear on sort of like the instrumental mixes where they were. He was talking about how they'd um, chucked a load of China in a bath to get an explosion sound. And there's like all this out of tune orchestra of freaking out in the background. And you kind of can't really hear it on the album version or the seven inch version. But in this, he was like going through it and playing all the all those little bits. And I just and as well as I don't know why I didn't record it because it sounds it sounds perfectly like the kind of thing I would have recorded off the radio at the time. Um, and yeah, so that's that, that's my, my memory of that. It's like someone going through the multi-track of Dr. Mabuse and explaining which each and what all of the 24 little tracks they must have been using then were on that record. Well, Capital did a lot of things like that. I mean, I'd shudder to think what's happened to their archive now. But up until, I think, the early 90s, they did a lot of speech programming, a lot of factual programming. There was all the comedy shows that I forgot about, not just Captain Kremen, but there was the Encyclopedia of Rock, that thing where Spiff and Jones first did those detectives on there, Alexis Sale and the Fish People, and they did all kinds of documentaries. And I found some evidence. They did a documentary about the comic strip when they first started. Now, if anyone out there has got that, I would love to hear that. Oh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It's interesting thinking about what radio speech documentaries I remember, because the only other thing that I sort of really remember was when there was such a fuss around it being the 20th anniversary of um, Sgt. Pepper, and that also being quite a big introduction to me for the Beatles. My dad really hated the Beatles, so I kind of grew up in, despite having been surrounded by loads of music and loads of rock and roll, he was really into Elvis and, you know, Buddy Holly and all those kind of things. He just kind of really didn't like um, the Beatles so I sort of grew up in this Beatles free household so then like documentary about the recording of Sgt Pepper I remember that as being my first real introduction to the Beatles well I remember something slightly different from the 20th anniversary celebrations which was in Granada we got I'm not even sure if this was networked but a really incoherent documentary called it was 20 years ago today that went on about the yippies trying to levitate the pentagon and you know all kinds of unrelated stuff about Carnaby Street and so on but in the middle for no real obvious reason because there wasn't any sort of contextual remarks to it. It had Pink Floyd, the Sid Barrett lineup, on, I think it was seen at 6.30, the old Granada news show from the 60s, doing Interstellar Overdrive, which I hadn't heard before then. Mm. And I was like, what? What is this? So <laughs> I came away from a documentary telling me that Sgt. Pepper was the best album ever made, thinking... What is that? I want to hear more of that. That's um, Interstellar Overdrive has become one of those things that I just can't listen to ever again because when I was at university, the guy who was living in the room next to me one night just got completely stoned and then just blasted it out on top volume about 17 times in a row. I just can't even face thinking about it as a track anymore. Please say, for the sake of your sanity, it was the album version and not that earlier tryout where it sounds like Sounds like somebody's hit the hollies over the head. It was on the 60 minutes of kind of jangly post-Mersey beat riffs. It was always, in those days, I mean, you can't move now for things about the making of classic pop singles, classic albums. And you get things like, I remember being really amused when Tony Visconti was talking about the making of Bowie's Heroes on BBC4. He pushed up one of the faders on it which immediately made it sound like the end theme for Bottom. When you think about it, it does go in the background of Heroes. I can never hear that in the same light, but you get them everywhere now. But in the 80s, it was really, really rare. I remember being really fascinated by, obviously, the news coverage of Do They Know It's Christmas when it was made. Had them recording it, had them doing extra takes, had them, you know, pushing the faders up and down. That was such a, to go behind the curtain, as it were, was a really rare thing in those days. Yeah, and I think in some ways, I think the introduction of compact discs 
helped that because people were going back through their old tapes to, to remaster and, and recompile stuff. My friend Rob the other day, uh, uh, Rob Manwell, who used to be work with me at House vs. Them and uh, runs Beta, was like basically saying that no album has ever been improved by lengthening it. And I just think those kind of like four CD reissues, deluxe package things, I just I can't think of any sort of like demo version, alternative version that I've ever preferred over the one that was eventually released and that I got used to. And I particularly find it weird with new albums. So like the new Manic Street Preachers album comes immediately with a deluxe version that includes like the demo versions of all the tracks. And it's like, so what I've got is I've got an album and then some slightly less well-recorded versions of the same songs. Like, why do I want the slightly less well-recorded versions? Well, I've always said, and some people have basically accused me of blasphemy for this, I had no interest in the Pet Sound Sessions box set, because I've always seen the original CD of Pet Sound, where it has the three bonus tracks, which is the unused track, Trombone Dixie, the alternate lyrics of I Know There's an Answer and a bit of vocals from I think it's Don't Talk Put Your Head on My Shoulder that they didn't use. You know, that's less than seven minutes in total. And that's all you need to know about the making of the album. Here's three things that didn't quite make the cut. I don't want to listen to endless variations of them doing slightly different harmonies on songs I know backwards anyway. So it goes too far sometimes. There is too much available because something, not even because something's deemed a classic. There was a two CD of A New Morning by Suede. In fact, I think it was a three disc. I think they had a DVD as well. Most people didn't want the original album in the first place. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always intrigued with the idea of blockbuster movies, you know, intentionally recording stuff to become the deleted scenes. I know my wife's been uh, extra on a couple of things that eventually haven't made it into the final cut on the movies for like the Marvel movies. And uh, I keep thinking, well, we must get the DVD because she's probably going to be in one of the deleted scenes. But then you're beginning to wonder whether they ever intended to put those scenes into the movie in the first place. I can't get my head around the fact that, you know, when I as a kid growing up in the 80s, I always used to buy the 12-inch singles of everything. And so I had these, you know, seven-minute versions of tracks of which three minutes were just basically the drum loop and the bass line with a little bit more echo on it or something. And like now I'm just like, give me the radio edit or give me death. I just want, you know, things to be short, sharp and just the best bit all condensed together. Yeah, I think it really stands out when there were, I think there were very few artists who actually recorded things to be the 12 inch version and edited down for a single and they're the ones that stand the test of time better like the haircut 100 12 inches they must be the full versions of those tracks because there's proper actual extra yes. bits in yeah. there but people were as you say they just loop the drums for ages or what's that communards one where it just starts with jimmy somerville going for i think over three minutes the very first couple of duran singles are like that as well aren't they the yes. night versions yeah. of planet earth or or girls on film are the proper versions okay well we might have been seeing the correct use of technology there but we're definitely not sticking with it for your last choice here's an example of the tracking question going right
Okay, well, that's a successful live version of your silent face by New Order. But, Martin, you saw it go horribly wrong once. Yeah, so in 1987, I went to see New Order a couple of times. But the first concert I remember going to see was my parents taking me to see um, Cliff Richard at the London Palladium. My dad was a big Cliff fan. I mentioned he, he really liked rock and roll. And so we went to went to see that. And then I remember going to see Ultravox and Tears for Fears, like, with friends. And, like, a friend's dad would go along with us. But um, New Order, we went to see, first of all, they played like a warm-up gig at the Woolwich Coronet in London. And I remember that because we had to go to the, uh, we had to go to the venue. This is obviously all pre-internet and mobile phone. So we had to go to the venue to physically buy the tickets. And then we were panicking because we'd successfully bought the tickets, but they said like no under 16s or no under 18s, you know, just as a general disclaimer as all venues do. But obviously being in that age range, we then started having the panic of, are we actually going to get into this gig? And then even there was a bus route that directly went from Woolwich to Walthamstow and Chinkford at that time one of my friend's dads was, was unhappy about us travelling home from the gig so insisted on coming and picking us up which was really hideously embarrassing you know you, you know, it's a sort of classic like we've just been to this gig and it's great oh we've got to go and get in, in the dad's car and then he rocked up at my parents' house a couple of days later to ask them for some petrol money <laughs> because he'd insisted on uh, which was just amazing I just think on my mum's face but anyway but that wasn't the gig that, that remember the, 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 later that summer factory put on in the super tent in Finsbury Park a big factory day and it was was the railway children and a certain ratio and happy mondays and new order and at that point i don't think we'd heard much happy monday stuff i think maybe the first album hadn't come out yet they'd had a couple of singles out but we knew the railway children quite well so we were excited about seeing them happy mondays was amazing i remember being right down at the front in the mosh pit and just thinking this was you know an incredible thing and then a certain ratio come on and they, they were good that was during their fourth era so probably not not their greatest era but you know they were good enough and then because it's such a massive super 10 and because we're kids and we didn't have mobile phones it all got split up so I ended up watching new order on my own and so then my memory of it is that they did your silent face which is an absolutely amazing track but that somehow Gillian had set off the sequencer in the wrong key to everybody else and so it just was your silent face but with this incredibly out of tune wrong keyboard all the way over it and that's my memory of it and but the thing is I suspect you know because they're the kind of band who there are extensive bootlegs of so you could probably find out I did used to have a bootleg cassette of the gig that we went to see at, at Woolwich and you know like a few weeks after the gig you'd go to um, go to Camden Market and get one of those cassettes with badly photocopied cover and so I had that but I never got a bootleg of the, the Finsbury Park gig but there's a bit of me now that wonders there was always this thing about Gillian not being able to play the keyboards and I just wonder whether it was something that came out of the sort of like kind of sexism that was in the music press uh, in the 80s and that and effectively she was always seen as the drummers roped his girlfriend into the band rather than the fact that she quite clearly could program complicated synthesizers that and when i thought about this for, for this podcast i suddenly began to think as why out of new order who've always been like interesting but a bit ramshackle did that idea that Gillian couldn't play the keyboards really, you know, take hold? And I, I just, I'm, I think it's quite interesting about the kind of attitudes at the time to, to having a, a woman in the band. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, ironically, that was around the same time as C86 when suddenly, you know, women in alternative music were basically saying, we are here, there's nothing you can do about it. And was suddenly taken a lot yeah. more seriously. But yeah, she really did come in for some stick, I think. As you say, I think there's a lot of sexism, the fact she was involved with somebody in the band. And I also do think, 
I've always thought she doesn't look very happy in the video for World in Motion. Doesn't yeah. look like she's really enjoying it, and probably that got some people's noses for masculine footbally reasons. How dare she not join in this celebration <laughs> of the beautiful game? But I always thought, to me, I'm not saying who I will pick out as the weak link in them, but it's certainly not her. But to me, New Order always seemed like our band. They were yeah, people yeah, who yeah. had equal input creatively, visually. It's like the way. I would argue Stockache and the Waterman together were a formidable team of producers. Separately, they've not really lived up to that. And it's that, I think it's that kind of idea that no matter who you are, you're bringing something to the table. And I can't say it was anything but an integral part of the band. One of the things I think that's also interesting about New Order is that, like, basically, even when they went through that phase where, you know, Barney was doing electronic and Peter Hook had that, was it called Monaco, that th- thing that he did? He had Monaco, but he had Revenge before that, which was dreadful. Oh, uh, but, like, the other two, it's like the other two in electronic and Monaco all just basically sounded like not quite as good New Order. <laughs> and, you know, there's something about them all being together. I must confess, I um, we saw them i went with my wife to see them at brixton i don't know about 10 years ago maybe even more than that now and it was one of those things where your wife just kind of says something casually and it sort of opens your eyes and she was just a bit like this just looks like your embarrassing uncle shambling around the stage and it kind of and so i stopped i stopped going to see them and also i know this sounds like absolute sacrilege but i remember when i first started seeing new order in the 80s it was absolutely amazing if they occasionally did a joy division track and then they've got into a thing where they've just basically incorporated Joy Division's greatest hits into the New Order set you know that sounds like a really weird thing to say but it's kind of like you go and see New Order and actually oh you're playing Isolation well to be honest I would rather hear something off one of the you know second or third New Order albums than this Joy Division track and that isn't even really Joy Division because obviously Ian isn't there but we saw them a couple of years ago at Latitude and that was quite fun because my kids had got into a couple of New Order tracks that we've been playing them in the car but then it's also it's that weird thing with kids because they don't have the sort of like historical baggage of it and um, so their favourite track was actually like Tutti Fruity off the last album so like my daughter was when they started playing that my daughter was like oh yeah it's great it's my favourite it's like everyone else is going oh it's a track off the new album time to go to the toilet in the bar and one like six or seven year old is going yeah come on and knows all the words that was quite funny but they've also taken recently to playing everything in the sort of like 12 inch remixed style which I can see how if you're a band you get bored of banging the singles out that sound like the singles but on the other hand you know particularly at a festival when it's quite a casual fan crowd it's like nobody needs the six and a half minute Shep Pettibone version of True Faith just play True Faith lads <laughs> uh, well I did look up just out of curiosity Happy Mondays is set list from that show and my jaw actually hit the floor because not only did they do Wah Wah, which is a B-side to 24-hour party people, which is one of their most overlooked tracks. I always really loved that. They did Desmond, which is on the original pressings of the first album, and it had to be taken off because it kind of interpolates Obla Dee Obla Da. And I think there yes, was so- yeah. I think it was something to do with Michael Jackson buying the rights to the catalogue around that time. Because a couple of years later, they did Lazy Itis with bits of Ticket to Ride in it, with absolutely no problem crediting Lennon and McCartney. So it must be something to do with that. But they actually did Desmond live. You know, the number of times I saw them, I never saw them do that. I saw them a lot around uh, that time, actually. Basically, pretty much any time they were coming down to London, I'd go to see them, which led to... um, a hideous situation when um, I don't know if you uh, remember Snub TV. So BBC Two's like attempt at youth program, which was pretty good to be honest. Snub TV. There was loads of great stuff on Snub TV, like World Domination Enterprises that I remember being on there and and things. Anyway, it was all stuff that I was really into. But it was on like a tea time, and so basically there was one tea time where we're all sitting around as a family eating dinner, and I'm making them listen to 
you know, what, the god awful racket that's coming out of the telly on, on Snub TV. My poor parents, in retrospect, but there you go. And anyway, they, so they, it's got Happy Mondays on it, and they're doing Do It Better, and it's filmed at the Astoria in London. And then about two thirds of the way, there's like this sort of slow mo pan across the front of the crowd, and I'm right at the front <laughs> waving to the camera in slow mo, clearly absolutely off my tits. And it's just as we're all sitting around having family dinner, it's just an amazing moment. And uh, that that's, that clip is uh, still uh, you can find that on YouTube. I think that's my the earliest uh, evidence of me existing on on the uh, internet is from is me looking at absolutely stoned from 1987 or something. Well, there's your challenge for next time, listeners. Go and find Martin on Snub TV. <laughs> Martin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. About me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles given a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.